So we're speaking out of, we're looking at Matthew 5, 1 through 16 this morning. I just want to reiterate a couple of things I said at the beginning. Uh, first of all, we're going to have baptisms in, after, the, after the sermon. What's going to happen, for those of you who are getting baptized and you want to know the procedure, after the sermon, I'm going to take you upstairs and Nathan and Robert are going to come back and lead in a couple more songs while we're getting ready to be baptized. So that's going to happen. Uh, also wanted to say, if you're, if you're watching us on Facebook, you might notice you have the opportunity to comment. Uh, Michael, our, our youth minister, is monitoring that. So if you have questions, things you want to just throw in there, please comment, question. He's got all the answers, I'm told. So, uh, uh, and like I said, we will be, our, our office will be open this week. So call us, uh, drop by if you need something email us. We're, we're still business as usual, even if we can't gather in large groups right now. So Matthew 5, 1 through 16, I, I wanted to start by, by talking about how, think about the links we go to as people to fit in. For instance, if you were invited to a party, of course you wouldn't go right now, but uh, in normal times, if you were invited to a party, one of the first things you'd want to know is, What's everybody going to be wearing? Because you don't want to be the one guy that shows up dressed like you're going to the beach while everybody else is business casual. You want to know, how is everybody going to be dressed? It's that way in all of life. Most of us grew up in a school that had a dress code. Some of you served in the military. Same thing. You had a dress code. Your business, uh, the place where you work, has a particular dress code. You probably live in a neighborhood that has particular deed restrictions. You can't just decide to build a shed in your backyard or paint the outside of your house. You have to ask someone. And if you do things that aren't up to their standards, if your grass gets a little long or if you uh, put in a new fence and you didn't ask permission, you'll get a note from the board. I, I had a neighbor who called these snotgrams. Um, and I had a relative once who was on the HOA board, and believe me, she was well qualified for that job. Now, now the thing is, the, 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 all those things have their purpose. I mean, dress codes create a sense of decorum where you work, where you go to school, and that's important. Uh, deed restrictions keep your property values high. And it's easier to just follow the rules. It's easier to fit in. It's easier to be like everybody else. But we're looking today at the beginning of the most famous talk ever given. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We won't look at all of it. We're just going to look at the beginning. But this is the longest single address that we have from Jesus in the Gospels. Most of it is done without parables, which is unusual for him. And, and the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is, as hard as we try to fit in, Jesus is calling us to stand out. As hard as we try to be like everyone else, Jesus is saying, no, I'm creating a new kind of people. I'm creating people who are different, who, who stand out from the rest. And so we have to go against our nature. I know, I know a lot of you are, are like me. You've grown up wanting to follow the rules and wanting to be like everyone else and, and wanting people to accept you. There's probably some of you who, in your teenage years, you weren't that way. You wore your hair, you wore clothes, you listened to music, you acted in ways specifically designed to irritate your parents, right? And, and so the whole idea was, I want to stand out. But you probably outgrew that about the time you started having kids. Maybe one out of a hundred people can honestly say, I just don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm going to do what I want, say what I want, think what I want. The truth is, 
deep down inside, we all want to fit in. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to do the opposite. And we're going to talk about what that means, what that looks like in real life. This is part of a series uh, that's, that's called His Story. We're looking at the fact that from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, there is a single narrative thread. Every story in Scripture, the story of Abraham and Sarah, the story of the, the Israelites during the Exodus, it, it, they're all stories that, that show God bringing peace to chaos. They're, they're all stories where God takes a mess and turns it into beauty through redemption. And all of those stories add up to one single story of him redeeming the whole world. Your story is designed to be part of his larger story if you'll just let him. And so two weeks ago, we looked at how from the very beginning, God's plan to bring peace to chaos was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And all through the Old Testament, we see preparation for that. Jesus is coming. The light is coming. Last week, Michael did a great job of showing us that before Jesus began his ministry, there was somebody who came, along, came, came up and, and prepared the way for him. John the Baptist is what we call him. But today we're going to look at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus by looking at what he taught in this Sermon on the Mount. And it begins in Matthew chapter 5. And verse 1 is important. We often skip over it, but, but pay attention. Verse 1 of Matthew 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Notice that. We often skip over that, but I think that indicates that our picture of the Sermon on the Mount is wrong because we usually picture Jesus up on a hill with the people spread out on the mountain below him, thousands of people standing there listening to him. That's what we see in the movies. And maybe that's the way it happened. I can't prove it's not. But verse 1 makes me think it was different than that. Verse 1 says, he saw the crowds, so he went up on the mountain. And he sat down and his disciples came to him. So what I think verse 1 is telling us is the Sermon on the Mount wasn't a message to thousands of people. The Sermon on the Mount was Jesus getting his disciples, his closest followers, the people who had already committed themselves to him, away from the crowds and saying, okay, I need to do some real training with you right now so you understand what is the new kind of people I'm trying to create. What is my ultimate goal with you? And for us... For those of us who've who've chosen to follow Christ, that means chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew show us the ultimate goal of the Christian life. What is God trying to make us into? And we're not going to cover the whole passage, but let's pick up verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
So we call the, the first 12 verses the Beatitudes, and that's from a Latin word that means blessed, because that's the word Jesus uses over and over again in that passage, blessed are, blessed are. And I want you to understand, when the Bible uses the word blessed, it means something different than what we mean. We hear blessed and we think, oh, that's a really religious-sounding word. That just means God has been good to me. Or uh, we say, bless you when someone sneezes. Or, uh, you know, I, uh, let's, say a bless, let's pray a blessing over our food. But the word blessed in Greek, which is the language Matthew was written in, literally means lucky. It means really fortunate. It means this guy's got the good life. Jesus is saying these are the people who have found the life that's abundant, the life that we all want. So think about that for a minute. What do we consider the good life? If we were writing this verse or this passage today, if we were writing the Beatitudes today, and we were speaking honestly, not trying to be super spiritual, I think we'd write them something like this. It would go, blessed are those who are cocky and boastful, for they get lots of attention. Blessed are the beautiful, the rich, and the powerful, for they always have a date on Saturday night. Blessed are the aggressive and self-centered, for they get what they want. Blessed are the party animals who throw away responsibilities and live for themselves, for they have all the fun. Blessed are the whiners and complainers, for they get their way in the end. Blessed are those who know how to spin the truth, for they get elected. Blessed are the bullies, for no one messes with them. Blessed are the affluent, for they can buy all the happiness they want. Can we be honest and say that's the way the world works? That's the way the world thinks? That's the way a lot of us think. But Jesus' version is radical for two different reasons. It's, it's radical, first of all, because he redefines what the good life really looks like. What is the good life in Jesus' view? He says it's good to be poor in spirit because then you're honest about how spiritually messed up you are and you can receive the grace of God in humility. It's good to mourn. You realize there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's good to mourn. It's good to weep because, quite frankly, life is sad sometimes, and it's better to just be honest about that and weep when you need to weep and take your sorrows to God for comfort than it is to pretend that everything is okay. It's good to be meek, which doesn't mean weak, by the way. It means to put others first. It means to give up your own rights for the sake of others because when you live like that, you're living like Jesus did. It's good to hunger and thirst for righteousness because God will give it to you, and it's the only food that really satisfies. It's good to be merciful and compassionate to those in need because someday you'll need compassion too. And if you're the one who's been compassionate to others, there'll be people lining up to bless you when you're in need. It's good to be righteous on the inside, not just externally, because the internal things are the ones that count the most. It's good to get involved in the lives of people who are in conflict with each other or separated from God. It's good to, to be the peacemakers God's called us to be because that's our calling. We're called to the ministry of reconciliation. And when we bring peace to others' lives, it makes our lives better too. It's even good to be mistreated because of your faith in God. That's the hardest one for us to grasp. But the reason why is that's a sign we're actually living right. Please understand, if you're being mistreated because you're obnoxious, that's not blessed. It's not blessed to be mistreated because you're a jerk. But if you're mistreated in spite of the fact that you're living like Jesus, you're, you're patient, you're kind, you're loving, you're forgiving, then that's a sign because the world treated Jesus that way. And they will oppose you if you live like he did. So Jesus redefines 
the good life, but he also redefines the way we ought to relate to others. Because think about it. We tend to judge ourselves by how much we impress other people, by how much we fit into their standards and expectations. We worry about our weight, not because we're worried about our health, but, well, do people think that I look good? Am I awake that people will look at and say, okay, he's in good shape, she's in good shape. We worry about how our kids behave, not because we're worried about them growing up and being happy, but we don't want other people to judge us as parents. We, don't, we worry that they're going to say, oh, my kids are hooligans, what am I going to do? We, we worry about, is my job prestigious enough? Is my house nice enough? We want people to look at us and think we're successful. And Jesus is saying, instead of worrying about fitting into everyone else's expectations, worry about standing out. Be salt and light. Don't be like everybody else. We should be different, but please understand, we should be different in ways that aren't just superficial. I knew a woman uh, who had a, a daughter, and when the daughter got to be a teenager, she suddenly, she suddenly stopped caring about her appearance, which is the opposite of what you would expect. So here's this young teenage girl who started wearing clothes that were too big for her, clothes that weren't flattering, didn't wear makeup, didn't do her hair, wouldn't even brush her hair unless the mom forced her. And the mom sat down with her and said, why are you doing this? And the daughter said, because all the girls at school who look that way, who wear those clothes, who dress up, who wear makeup, all those girls are the worst people I know. They're mean and they're cruel and they're nasty and they make everybody miserable and I don't want to be anything like them. And I thought the mom's response was really wise. She said, first of all, it really doesn't matter how you look. I'll, I'll love you no matter what. You want to dye your hair pink, you want to get a mohawk, you want to wear uh, the ugliest clothes you can find, I'm still going to love you. So that's, this, that's not what this is about. But if you really want to be different than those girls, why are you focused on just looking different? Why not focus on differences that count? Why not be different than them by being kind? Why not be different than them by being considerate and forgiving, by being generous, by being good to the kids that they're mean to? Now, the daughter didn't really like that answer when she was a teenager. Because let's face it, it's always easier to focus on superficial things. But over time, she grew into a very gracious and as she grew into her faith, as she grew into her emotional and spiritual maturity, she grew into a very gracious and kind and generous young woman. And as Christians, we're tempted to do the same thing that young girl did. We're tempted to say, yeah, we're supposed to be different. So it's all about the movies I watch and the clothes I wear and the things I say. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be focused on abstaining from these vices over here, and that's going to set me apart. When we should say, what is really attractive to people who don't know Christ? Think about salt and light. What, what is it about salt that makes salt different? If you're eating food and you, you take a bite of a dish that's well-seasoned, you know it immediately, and you want more. Remember the old commercial with the potato chips? I bet you can't just eat one. I bet you can't eat just one, right? Did you ever try that, by the way? It's, it's hard. Um, salt is attractive. Think about a well-lit room. You don't need floodlights in every room of, that, of your house. You just need two or three well-placed bulbs. But a well-lit room is an attractive place to be. That's where you want to sit. That's where you want to read. That's where you want to be. 
And so Jesus is saying, stand out, but stand out in ways that are attractive, in ways that are compelling, in ways that are different from the world that draw people to me. In other words, Christians, we're not supposed to just be arbitrarily weird. We're not supposed to run around condemning the world for not acting like Christians when, guess what, they're not Christians. But instead, we're supposed to stand out by being more like Him. And remember, the people who were furthest from God were most drawn to Him. So how do we become those kinds of people? Two things, I believe. Number one, focus more on internal change than external image. And that's hard for us. Again, we want to focus on the superficial. But if we focus on changing on the inside, I think that's going to make us into new people. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. Every Christian, every single one, including you, ought to have a a list of qualities that you're constantly praying to God that He would place into your heart. I know I pray for wisdom and courage and, and, and boldness and several other things that you don't need to know about, but do you have your list? And if you don't have your list of qualities you're asking God to place inside of you, Let me ask you to start by reading through that passage of the Beatitudes again and say, which one of these do I have the least of in my life? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I truly meek? Do I make peace with others? Am I I stepping into the breach when people are not getting along and, and making peace between them? What is it that Jesus talks about in this passage that I'm not doing well at? And ask Him to change you. And pray for it. And pray for it every day until you see your heart change. And when your heart changes and you think you're there, move on to the next one. This is a process that never ends. But focus more on internal change than external image. Secondly, focus more on influencing people than on impressing them. Focus more on the impact you have on others and drawing them toward the light than you do on whether they think you're a a good person or, or... or or that you fit their expectations. See, this is why at First Baptist, we're focused on facilitating transforming relationships. 10,000 times over the next 10 years, we want to see members of our church get involved with people who are struggling in one way or another and help them towards peace in their life. We want to be an externally focused church. We want to change the whole idea of what it means to be a Christian from, okay, because I'm a Christian, I abstain from these vices and I go to church on Sunday, to because I'm a Christian, I do those things, but, but even more so, I invest in other people. And here's the pe- here are the people that I'm praying for daily. Here's the people that I'm working to do my best to be a good influence on, to help them toward peace in their lives. And, and let's face it, there's a terrible temptation to not do any of this. There's a temptation to say, okay, I hear what you're saying, Jeff, but I've read Matthew 5 through 7, and that's like, that's like special forces level Christianity, and I'm more the average soldier, okay? I don't qualify for that stuff. I'm just not that spiritual. And that sounds like humility, but it's not. People who say that, and we've all been there, people who say that, what we're really suffering from is what we call today FOMO fear of missing out. What we're afraid of is, I, I'm afraid that if I give all of myself to Jesus, I'm going to miss out on something now. 
I'm afraid that if I give all of myself to God, then I'm not going to have as much fun as the person who doesn't. I'm not going to, uh, what if he sends me to, to the Congo to be a missionary? What if, what if he turns me into one of those religious nuts and, and everybody avoids me? We're afraid to give our whole self to Christ because we might miss something. Our attitude, we, we never say it this way, but our attitude is basically, just give me enough Jesus to save me from hell, but not anymore. And there's a problem with that idea. It, it doesn't make sense when you think about who God is and how much he loves you. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis, probably the most famous C.S. Lewis quote there is. You've probably heard it. It's from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. And I want to read it for you because I think it addresses this right here. He says, he writes, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, ironically, a lot of us read the instructions of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and we say, that's too hard. I can't do that. But if Jesus is right when he says, these are the people who are truly blessed, in other words, these are the people who are really living the good life, then it's too hard not to live that way. We're cheating ourselves by not trying to live the life God wants us to live. We're cheating ourselves out of the real, true joy. So think about that quote I just gave you from C.S. Lewis. I mean, let's put some flesh on it. Imagine Imagine there's a little orphan in a third world country in a shabby little orphanage, and every day he just goes out and plays in the mud behind the building, and that's all he has. And imagine one day a wealthy family from America comes and says, we want to adopt you. Will you be our son? And he's overjoyed. Absolutely. I will take your name. I will be your child. And they say, okay, pack up your things. We're going home. And he says, well, wait a second. I, I didn't know I had to leave. I mean, can't I just stay here? I, I don't want to lose my little bed and, and my little closet and, and this little pile of mud that I play with every day. And they say, well, you don't understand. We've got a beautiful house, and you'll have your own room, a bed four times as big as this and much more comfortable, no bed bugs. You'll have good food every day. You'll wear clean clothes every day. You'll have brothers and sisters that love you. You'll get to go to a school with lots of kids who will be your friends. And he says, yeah, but I don't know what any of that's like. I know what I have here. So can I just be your son and stay here? Can't you just give me some new mud? If you really want to make me happy, can't you just give me some new mud? See, I, I think a lot of Christians are saying to Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for adopting me into your family. And I know you have this great life for me that you have planned, but I'm a little worried about that because I don't know what that's like. Can't you just give me some more of what I'm already experiencing, just new things? As a Christian, I think every one of us needs to look at our lives and say, how much of us is still back at the orphanage, wishing God would give us some new mud? And how much of us is, has already gone home with him, has already said, this is my family now. This is the new place I'm going to live. This is the new way I'm going to live how much of you is back at the beginning, still seeking after the same old stuff? And how much of you has changed because you've said, Christ knows. He has my best interests at heart. 
And maybe your problem's not FOMO. Maybe your problem is you say, all this sounds great, but I can't live that way. I know myself. I am not that good a person. And you know what? You're right. But the good news is, Jesus died on the cross not just to forgive you, but to change you. Jesus died on the cross not just to make sure your sins are washed away, but to make sure you are a new person in Him. When we do our baptisms in just a moment, one of the things we say is, as we lower people under the water is buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And that's, those aren't magical words. That's, that's the story of something that actually happens. You become a new person. Christ comes into you in the form of His Holy Spirit and gives you the ability to live a new way. And just like riding a bicycle, you don't just immediately jump on it and, and do the Tour de France. It takes a while to learn how. But from the beginning, you are a new person, and you grow in your ability to live that way. So all you have to do is say, Christ, I believe you died to make a new life for me possible. Please come in and start that new life in me today.